This is American Rhapsody, a podcast of the Briscoe Center for American History at the University of Texas at Austin. Each episode, we interview those who witnessed American history firsthand, who have since donated their archives to the Briscoe Center. We also talk to historians, journalists, and others who research in those collections. We're all asking the same question. What actually happened? That is uh, about uh, the most pitiful thing I've ever seen. I've seen parents carrying children down the street on their shoulders, just unable to raise their heads, taking them to the doctor's office, seeing uh, caskets just piled up, bodies in them, I suppose, some ready to be shipped out. One hundred years ago, the world was in the final throes of a deadly pandemic known as the Spanish flu, which began in 1918, the final year of the First World War. It came in two waves that year, and again in the spring of 1919. It finally burned itself out in the year that followed. During that time, it ravaged a war-weary world, killing as many as 40 million people across the globe. Over a half million people and America died. In fact, more Americans died from the flu between 1918 and 1920 than were killed in the Civil War. And yet, we have virtually no public memory of this catastrophic public health crisis. No monuments, statues, plaques, or memorial days. Not much literature either. The flu plays a major role in Willa Cather's 1923 war novel, One of Ours, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And it was the subject of Catherine Ann Porter's acclaimed short story, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, published in 1939. But not much else. Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, and Steinbeck all wrote about the war in great detail, but they avoided the flu like well, like the plague. Historians, too, haven't paid it the attention it deserves. That is until recently. Today we hear from three scholars who've studied the Spanish flu. One of them is Ben Wright, who is an associate director at the Briscoe Center. Earlier this year, I asked him to look through the center's collections related to past public health crises. Pandemics and epidemics are nothing new to American history, and I wanted to get a better feel for how our collections might speak to our current predicament. The results of Ben's preliminary investigation are fascinating. Many personal papers, especially those of doctors and nurses whose collections are housed at the center, speak to how Americans have dealt with the pandemics of the past. Today, obviously, it makes sense for scientists, including many here at the University of Texas at Austin, to take the lead on matters related to COVID-19. And yet, when it comes to making sense of the coronavirus, the past is not without its lessons, warnings, and perhaps even reassurances. Ben, welcome to this episode in our series of podcasts. 
Thank you for having me. You know, Ben, I, I know that soon after uh, COVID-19 entered our lives back at the beginning of 2020 here, you've been looking in the center's archives to learn more about the collections that the Briscoe Center has that document the history of public health. What have you uncovered? Well, I've uncovered all sorts of things in the Briscoe Center's collections. Um, Public health history isn't something that I've personally been focused on in my work at the center or in my um, graduate work. And uh, it's certainly an emerging strength for a lot of young historians. And so it shouldn't have surprised me, but it it certainly did. The the Briscoe Center has all these collections related to epidemics, pandemics, public health crises, um, mostly focused on Texas in the 19th and early 20th century. But uh, there there are wider, um, there's certainly more to the story than that. Um, I'm thinking, for example, um, there are at least a couple of photographic archives, I'm thinking Matthew Nathan's in particular, of photographic photojournalists who were also medical doctors. But going back to the 19th century, the Senna has the papers of doctors, uh, the Rummel family papers, the Swearingham papers, even Ashbel Smith, one of the founding fathers of Texas. And we see in these doctor papers um, a history and, you know, a, well, a recording of epidemics in Texas, yellow fever, cholera, that sort of thing. I also found a collection called the Medical History of Texas Collection, which was a collaboration between uh, UT Archives back in the 1940s with the Texas Medical Association to really compile uh, the founding documents of public health in Texas. From what I can tell, this collection has not been used very much over the last couple of decades. And so it's sort of one of those collections that is ripe for the moment right now. It's just begging for someone to get in there and and you know uncover this lost history of early Texas medicine. And then there's the university archives, which document the university's approach to pandemics and epidemics, particularly the Spanish flu of 1918. Um, And then the Texas Oil Industry Records, which is an oral history collection that dates from the 1950s. They document the 1918 Spanish flu in the Texas oil fields. So there's this whole gamut of different collections that look at public health crises in American history. Well, you know, Ben, your digging around has actually uncovered some valuable material that uh, I don't think any of us was aware of. I mean, for example, uh, this medical history of uh, Texas that was done in conjunction with the University of Texas Libraries and the Texas Medical Association and was concluded in 1942. I think that's a very valuable find. So, you know, this is a very productive kind of search. Now, you know, you mentioned uh, the interviews and the Texas oral history uh, records. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about that collection. So this collection, I think it dates from 1951. Uh, there was a gathering of oil pioneers in Beaumont who were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Spindletop discovery. And as you know, 50th anniversaries are, are, are very popular for a sort of recollection projects. Over the last few years, we've had all these recollection projects in regard to civil rights because all the 50th anniversaries of civil rights have been 
pumped out 1964 1965 we've seen it with vietnam we're going to see it with watergate in a few years it's it's one of those points in american memory where eyewitnesses are getting up in years and people decide that their eyewitness accounts need to be recorded for posterity and that happened in the 50s as well and so you have this 50th anniversary of spindletop there's a lady called Estelle Sharp, who was the wife of one of the early Spindletop drillers. She saw this need to gather these recollections of the pioneers that were still around. And so we're talking about interviews with, um, with early oil industry folks. Um, we're talking about drillers, wildcatters, um, even mule skinners and rig workers. And some of these oral histories document the Spanish flu in those Texas oil fields. Well, you know, Ben, you mentioned Estelle Sharp and this, uh, you know, this whole project. Uh, one of the things I want to point out that you may not be aware of, but this oral history project that was uh, managed by the University of Texas back in the early 1950s was really among the very first organized oral history projects using, you know, tape recorders. The WPA did a lot of oral histories, but they were transcribed by hand. Some of them were recorded with early wire recorders, but this particular project you're talking about was was historic in itself in terms of methodology because it was among the first of its kind. Oh, right. And also, uh, Estelle Sharp, going back to her a second, I just want to say that uh, her husband, Walter B. Sharp, died very young uh, after he had made a fortune at Spindletop, and he was the partner of Howard Hughes Sr., uh, the father of the famed movie director, uh, oh, interesting. No- notorious Howard Hughes Jr. And when Walter Sharp died, he, of course, left his fortune to his wife, Estelle Sharp. And she became quite an important philanthropist in Houston, the city of Houston. She actually established an endowment at the university that is now at the Briscoe Center, the endowment. And we enjoy the income from her philanthropy to support a number of projects that we do every year. Uh, so I, I, I just wanted to mention that. I digress a bit from uh, the subject, but I wanted to get that in. No, that's, that's really interesting because I'm sure Miss Sharp didn't have in mind this you know, British dude, what, you know, 70 years later, <laughs> rifling around these interviews for a completely different sort of project. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because actually Estelle Sharp was uh, one of the things that she did in Houston is she led, uh, she was the leader of a number of women's clubs in Houston. And she was well known for uh, insisting that the agendas of these clubs, that they would have open public forums to study, quote unquote, international and current affairs. So she was very much an internationalist, interestingly enough. And this is, we're talking about the 1920s. One of the members of her organization was a woman named Ovita Culp Hobby. I've heard that name before. I I bet you have. Ovita Culp Hobby was the wife of Governor William P. Hobby. Was actually, she was greatly influenced by Estelle Sharp. She, of course, organized and was the first director of the Women's Army Corps and later first secretary of health, education, and welfare. But as I said, we digress. <laughs> back to the flu. <laughs> back to the flu. Um, right. So, Ben, let's uh, let's get returned to the Spanish flu. Uh, explain to our listeners uh, really what the Spanish flu was. 
Well, we'll hear more about the origins of the Spanish flu in the second part of this podcast, but to surmise it really quickly, the Spanish flu was a pandemic that travailed the whole world in 1918. It was one of the deadliest pandemics in human history. It infected half a billion people worldwide, and uh, which at the time was about a third of the population. And it uh, is estimated to have killed between 20 and 50 million people. We don't know exactly because of the way records were kept at the time. Well, it killed over half a million Americans. It was just this incredibly tumultuous public health crisis. And uh, Texas was not spared either. Well, so you're, you're saying that uh, Spanish flu uh, came to Texas. And how was it experienced here? How did it impact Texas? Well, there's no coincidence that Spanish flu um, occurred during World War One. Spanish flu is actually a misnomer. Uh, there's pretty good evidence that it originated in Kansas. But wherever it originated, it originated in a military context. Uh, World War One was ranging in Europe. The United States was in this incredible mobilization effort. And so you had soldiers in cramped conditions all across the country. But you also had this incredible military movement across the country and indeed across the whole of Europe. So the flu came through the military. It was um, it was rife at Camp Maybury here in Austin, and it came to the University of Texas. It completely uh, destroyed the fall semester of 1918. As we'll learn later, it led to a shutdown in Austin. While we know a lot about what happened in places like Austin, Philadelphia, St. Louis, New York, we've got lots of newspapers, we've got kind of public health documents we discussed earlier. In places like the oil fields, the, the, there is less documentation. We're not talking about the sort of folks that journaled, that kept diaries. Um, and so we rely on collections like these oral histories done sort of 30 years after the facts to tell us what happened in places like the oil fields. And as it turned out, the oil fields were some of the hardest hit places in America. Well, I find that very, that's, that's a very interesting uh, point. Who would have known that the oil fields were the hardest hit? I mean, you know, you're talking about Austin. Uh, it reminds me, you know, even Governor William P. Hobby had a very severe case of the flu, and there was even some talk that uh, he might die and the lieutenant governor would have to take his place. So no one was spared. But uh, right. so if it was worse than Texas oil fields than it was in cities and rural areas, uh, I mean, what parts of the state are we talking about here when we're talking about oil fields? Some of the interviews mentioned Buck Burnett, Ranger, Goose Creek. Mostly they tended to be rural communities, wildcat communities, oil boom towns, if you like, between Fort Worth and Abilene, so in the western portion of the state, and then between Houston and Beaumont in the east. These were at the time mostly rural areas that were inundated by the oil industry once oil was discovered. Again, the First World War helped spike a, a demand for oil. And so, you know, wildcatters were combing the state trying to find fields to exploit. So while these were predominantly rural areas, they're also extremely crowded areas. And they were also places with poor sanitation. They were poorly planned. Often people were living in shacks and tents. And so, and you didn't have the hospital infrastructure and the public health infrastructure in place to deal with a pandemic. So conditions in these camps were pretty horrendous. Well, can we hear one? Let's listen to one of those interviews. Yeah, let me pull one up. 
They were uh, I was in Ranger and had this flu epidemic. And uh, that is uh, about the most pitiful thing I've ever seen. I've seen parents carrying children down the street on their shoulders, just unable to raise their heads, taking them to the doctor's office, seeing uh, caskets just piled up, bodies in them, I suppose, some ready to be shipped out. That uh, was one of the hardest things to, to see. So this gentleman, O.G. Lawson, born in West Virginia, and um, sort of was an itinerant oil worker who came to Ranger in 1917. It was, at the time, a drought location, and so the locals had initiated a search for oil, and by mid-1917, they'd found some. And daily production at one point got up to 1,700 barrels, which by today's standards isn't very high, but was a sort of uh, you know, a sort of local cash cow at the time. It was a real, there was a real bonanza. And so uh, this kicked off an oil boom in the area that radically transformed Ranger. But again, these unsanitary conditions, uh, makeshift housing, and indeed torrential rain, which followed the drought, led to outbreaks of typhoid and things like that. So when the flu came along, it found the town ill-prepared to deal with what happened. And Lawson describes the scene, you know, and it's harrowing, parents carrying children down the streets on their shoulders, unable to raise their head. Mr. Lawson also describes caskets piled on top of each other, as if, uh, you know, there was a shortage of, uh, of funeral infrastructure, not just medical infrastructure. That's fascinating. Uh, you have some more? Well, let's listen to some more of these excerpts. Yes, we do. Um, this is Fred Jennings, who was a rig manager in Goose Creek, Texas, between Houston and Beaumont. And there's apparently a great deal of sickness then. Oh, terrible. And up until 1918, we had a flu epidemic. And they died, the people died, and they just died so fast here until they didn't have uh, no undertakers, and you just have to put them in pickup trucks and haul them to Houston and just put them in a pine box and bury them in a way you could. Uh, that went on to, well, and that was uh, 1918. That was through the winter months of 1918 when the flu epidemic was so bad. And me and I, I saw one man work and, and walk home and was dead in, in 30 minutes after he came home with that flu. So again, you just have these recollections of the flu in the middle of a larger oral history project, which is, you know, quite a triumphant Texas legend, you know, the history of Spindletop. And then the uh, people being interviewed sort of, they, they enter hushed tones speaking about the Spanish flu as if it's a nightmare they'd forgotten about. The Goose Creek is now uh, called Baytown. That is now the city of Baytown. Oh, right. Yeah, just to the uh, east of uh, Houston and um, on the north uh, shore of Galveston Bay. Well, Jennings, you know, it, Jennings talks about the founding of Goose Creek, now Baytown. Uh, I believe it was Ross Sterling, president of Humble Oil, and a future governor who, who, who you've studied and, and written about. Sterling pioneered a railroad connection leading to the fields, and this, this led to a boom town almost overnight. Jennings talks about 30,000 people basically showing up one day. Well, eventually, uh, you know, eventually Standard Oil of 
New Jersey actually took over Humble Oil Company. And they built, at the time, I don't know if it still is, but at the time, it was the largest oil refinery uh, in the world. And, you know, that's really what Baytown grew out of, the city of Baytown. Well, Jennings talks about, you know, fistfights, gunfights, poor treatment of women, the arrival of the Klan. And he has this one line in his interview where he's trying to make sense of the Spanish flu. And he says something to the equivalent of, you know, if, the, the, the managers, the rig managers had a joke, which was, look, if you if you kill a mule, you have to get another mule. The mules are expensive. But if a worker dies on the job, we just get another one. <laughs> oh, my so gosh. Peop- I know. It's awful. Uh, so these people were treated as they were expendable. Uh, and they were in an industry driven by profit that could get someone else if they could weren't available to do the work. So he describes people showing up on the job with symptoms and then uh, dying 30 minutes after arriving at home. Um, so again, you just, you just get these sort of micro-apocalyptic scenes being described. Yeah, that's a fascinating thing. Why do you think that uh, it was so bad or really much worse in the oil fields than it was in the cities or the rural areas? I think you have a few things going on. One, one, you've got these crowded unsanitary conditions. You have profit over people. You have a complete lack of public health infrastructure, a complete lack of public health knowledge. Again, people are showing up to work with symptoms. You know, we talk a lot today about flattening the curve, the idea being that we need to keep the curve at a place where hospital capacity can handle things. You have these scenes. I can cue up another here, um, a gentleman called Plummer Barfield, who was a mule train operator in Jefferson County. He describes a scene where they can't keep the curve under casket capacity, let alone hospital capacity. Even as late as 19 and 20, well, we were pretty short-handed during the flu epidemic around the cemetery because especially in the fall and early spring of fall of 19, early spring of 20, when the epidemic was at its worst, well, people were just afraid to get out. And, well, Ben, uh, uh, this is all amazing stuff. Uh, is there any good news in this sad story? I think we can see good news in two ways. One is that these stories would have been completely forgotten, that that these tragedies, uh, these American lives, would have been lost had these interviews not taken place. And we can glimpse something of these ordinary Americans' lives, these rig workers, mule train operators. Their story is remembered because of this project in the 1950s that Miss Sharp uh, pioneered herself. I think that's part of the good news. Um, And the other thing that these oral histories tell us is that there were community efforts in some places, that this was the Wild West. But at the same time, there there was a communal spirit that rose up in the midst of of these debacles. Uh, We see in Burke Burnett, the Red Cross organized. Uh, We have an interview from a gentleman called Walter Klein, who uh, was a Red Cross worker in Burke Burnett. Yeah, that's up around Wichita Falls. He describes the scene of uh, the community coming together to help these itinerant workers. I remember it quite well because uh, I took a young lieutenant doctor and a hard-boiled gal, a former regular army nurse, an Irish gal, 
out in my car. I think on our first trip west of Burkwinet, we gathered up some uh, six-rate uh, dead uh, men, women, and children, and uh, they continued to die until we uh, found a temporary shelter for them. The people in which Falls were most generous and helpful. They shipped uh, lumber and bedding and uh, food and clothing by Carlo. As I recall it, the uh, the railroad uh, uh, hauled it to Burkwinet uh, free of any freight charge. And the Teamsters, the oil field uh, haulers, uh, hauled it out to where it uh, was needed without any charge. And the workers uh, from Wichita Falls and Burkwinet were working without charge. And uh, it possibly was one of the saddest sights I've ever had to experience. And... Uh, since I was directing the Red Cross and since I had asked for government aid, I felt uh, some personal responsibility in seeing the thing through. You've given a lot of thought to this, Ben. I mean, is there anything in this uh, history that uh, can teach us something about our, really our experience with COVID-19? You know, we're dealing with a coronavirus today. Uh, a Spanish influenza was a coronavirus. And many of the public health measures are, are similar to today. There was social distancing. There was an emphasis on hygiene. And I think another similarity uh, is the role of archives. How will coronavirus be remembered and recorded today? Will we have these sort of oral history interviews being taking place in the future? Will we archive well this current moment so that we can study it later? Uh, I think one of the warnings from the Texas oil fields is what happens when profit is put over people, when the desire to, the need to be paid causes ill people to go to work, which puts a whole community at risk. And we just see how this virus could rip through these these oil communities. I think one of the reassurances is that we are better set up today uh, in public health infrastructure with sanitary conditions, um, with public health information to deal with something like this. And I used to think one of the reassurances was that people kind of just moved on with their lives and forgot the Spanish influenza. What I'm learning the more and more I dig into this topic is that it was forgotten for a reason. It was forgotten because people thought of it as a defeat. They thought that they were at war with the coronavirus of their day, the Spanish influenza, and they feel that it was a war that they lost. And so it was sort of swept under the carpet. There was an emphasis on the First World War later, and then World War II comes and um, sort of knocks every other memory outside the Civil War and the Revolution. And, and so it becomes flyover territory in American history. But again, these oral history interviews are here for us to re-remember. And uh, they're an amazing resource for historians today, uh, contemplating how, how communities have dealt with pandemics in the past. Well, you know, this is also a perfect example of how uh, we can learn things from the past. I mean, the parallels uh, between w what we're going through now with COVID and uh, with the Spanish flu, so-called, Spanish flu. You know, it's just really pretty stunning. It's a perfect example of what archives can do to help rescue the past so that we can try to, to come to grips with what we're currently dealing with. Now, you know, later in this episode, uh, my understanding you're going to do an interview with uh, two others who've been studying the Spanish flu. Who are you going to be talking to, Ben? So I'm going to be talking to Christopher Rose, who is a recent uh, PhD graduate from 
UT Austin's history department. He studies the Spanish flu with a particular focus on Egypt, of all places. But he has a general understanding of, of how the Spanish flu affected the United States, Europe, and indeed Northern Africa. And then also going to be speaking with Michael Barnes, who is a historian of Austin over at the Austin American Statesman, who has also worked in the Briscoe Center's collections to uncover what happened in the city of Austin during the Spanish influenza. Okay, that's great, Ben. I look forward to hearing Christopher and Michael. And thank you for joining us uh, today. Please uh, give my regards to both of them. I look forward to hearing it. Will do. Thank you, Don. Thank you. Chris, I'll start with you, if that's okay. Um, for a start-up, can you, can you let listeners know why uh, we refer to the Spanish flu as the Spanish flu? The influenza pandemic became known as Spanish because when it presented in Europe, Spain as a neutral country was the only country that did not have its press under military censorship. And so speaking about the flu, quote unquote, as it was observed in Spain, was a way of getting around censorship in other countries. And so it would sort of signal to readers that these sorts of things were also occurring in their own countries, but it was a way of getting around press censorship. There is no connection between Spain and the origin of the flu, although there is an urban legend, I don't know if it's true, that certain publishing magnates uh, encouraged in the United States the use of the term Spanish flu, because Spain was the American boogeyman at the time. We had recently fought the Spanish-American War, we'd acquired Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines from the ailing Spanish Empire. So there is a little bit of that in there, but Otherwise, the first cases weren't recorded in Spain. Spain did not suffer uh, inordinately more than any other part of the world during the pandemic. So it is a, maybe First Amendment flu would be better. Uh, this is a, a place where you could talk about it. And you, your research in particular has focused on Egypt, am I right? That's correct. It showed up in Egypt during a critical window between the end of military action with the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans uh, surrendered on October 30th, 1918. The most lethal wave of the flu, which was the second wave, hit Egypt in November and December. And then in March, there was a national uprising. And so part of my research has looked at the role that the pandemic may have played in politicizing, in particular, the peasantry, who uh, tended not to be considered a political demographic at the time. Michael, you did a big story for the Statesman back in March that really went sort of blow by blow through the city's experience. We work with you a little bit on that. And just for our readers, where are you drawing your information about what happened? Well, I went through the newspapers which is easy to do these days. I looked at what was being reported. And early on, the media had nothing on the earliest parts of it in, in the spring of 1918. And then in the summer, most of the stories were kind of blasé or, or even comical about, well, it's just a couple of weeks in bed, a couple of weeks in the country or whatever. By September 27th, one case was reported at Camp Mabry, which was one of those places where people were close together, densely packed. 
by October 4th, 900 fresh cases have been reported. So just as Chris had said, I mean, it must have felt apocalyptic. Did you get a sense that people went from taking it less seriously to more seriously in the reporting? Absolutely. And part of it was, of course, the fact that the governor went missing. Uh, governor Hobby was nowhere to be found, later revealed that he had become ill and retired to Beaumont to recover. So people must have felt a little leaderless as well. So yes, there must have been an anxiety, a political anxiety in the city around that, I imagine. Absolutely. And the, the cases, as they were reported in the paper, were divided up between soldiers and, because of the time, uh, civilians and Negroes were a third category. And uh, it looks like the Black community was much harder hit. In fact, there were appeals for volunteers to help out with the African-American population that had fallen ill. And the biggest hot spots were, of course, the UT campus, Penfield and Camp Mabry, but also all the state institutions, the Insane Asylum, the Texas School for Deaf and Dumb, and the Texas Deaf and Dumb and Blind Institute for Colored Youth all had uh, much higher rates of infection and death. That's really interesting that you point out that the African-American population was heavily infected because... There were a number of doctors uh, up north, I'm thinking specifically Chicago and Detroit, who claimed that black people were immune to the flu because the reported rates up there were so low. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, one of the great historical questions has been whether this is an actual accurate fact or whether the statistics just weren't being reported properly and they were getting a false impression of the infection rates. And once again, mirrored in COVID because early on, I remember seeing the mayor of Chicago on television saying the black community in Chicago believes they can't get it. And so the way things are reported, as you say, often affect the way that, that people think about it. And of course, recording the experience of the black community in Austin during 1918, 1919, I'm sure recording the experience of peasant communities in Egypt, there are similar dilemmas when it comes to primary sources here, to discovering what happened and working out what happened. Um, Chris, what, what sort of pitfalls did you find researching? This is a population that I, the whole country was over 90% illiterate at the time. So any sorts of uh, primary sources, diaries, writings were, were very difficult, if not impossible to come by. I relied mainly on the press. Um, and what was interesting was that they had spent much of the war doing the sort of normal for the time, uh, blame the victim uh, for diseases like uh, typhus or typhoid fever or relapsing fever, all of which are illnesses associated with poverty because they thrive in, in dense areas. Uh, and then when it came to the flu, suddenly uh, it was held up in as, as an example of state incompetence that poor people were dying from the flu. So it was a very interesting tone shift. And I think part of this may have well have had to do with the fact that so many of the medical professionals in the country had been sent off with the campaign in Palestine because a lot of them held military rank, uh, Egypt at the time being a British possession. 
And the idea that they were needed at home and were not available to treat people was sort of a recurring theme, especially in the Arabic press. But getting any sort of, of primary account would, of course, be the holy grail here. I even put something out on my blog asking if anybody had family stories. And some people do and some people don't. It's, it's just interesting what is and isn't commemorated. I'd love to get onto this idea of commemoration eventually. Um, first, I want to see if there was any sort of lockdown or shutdown measures in Egypt. There were some, they were ad hoc. The British administration would not shut down religious institutions, so they were still meeting for communal prayer every Friday uh, at the mosque and every Sunday at the churches because they had learned their lesson in India that they were not going to interfere with local religious practices. There were certain shutdown measures imposed, but they were frequently criticized for being inconsistent. So, for example, bars would be closed, but not restaurants. Cinemas would be closed, but not dance halls. So, there was a lot of complaining about, you know, why, for example, are the trams still allowed to operate? when you've restricted the number of people that can take horse-drawn carriages, for example. It was, it was very inconsistent uh, and sort of slapdash. Michael, what about in Austin? Were there shutdown or lockdown measures? Um, a public notice ran on October 7th, 1918, and I quote, an ordinance closing the state university, all public and private schools and colleges of the city of Austin, all churches and lodges and all other places of assemblage where people gather for religious, social, fraternal, political, business, or other purposes for a period of 30 days. And they actually rescinded it uh, in less than 30 days on November 2nd. So I guess they felt they had it under control. <laughs> I, I understand there was some conversation in December about a second shutdown in Austin, and the, the mayor essentially didn't feel he had the ability to to get away with it, so to speak. Well, or at least he felt he didn't have the ability to to enforce it. Do you think there was reluctance on Austinites to shut down? You know, I don't have any insight on that, but I, I will say that the entire city council were all businessmen, white businessmen, and I'm sure uh, a similar backlash happened with the the original shutdown. Uh, that it, it just crushed business. There was a great deal of concern about even essential services not having enough people to to operate. And I would suspect that Mayor Woolridge came under pressure from his fellow businessmen. Do you think that the war effort perhaps helped the response to Spanish flu because you've already got people are used to government instruction at this point. They're used to, there are sort of supply chains and logistical dynamics in place. Do you think that is something that assisted the recovery? Well, that's a very interesting uh, a suggestion. I hadn't thought of it that way. I, uh, I tend to think of the war effort having had two very negative aspects in that men were being, and women who were caring for them oftentimes, were in crowded situations and moving, you know, from continent to continent and across the country. But also, uh, as we talked about before, the censorship meant that we weren't getting good information. And a lot of it had to do with, in this country, not wanting to panic people during a wartime. Chris, 
What is it about the Spanish influenza that means we don't remember it in, say, the same way we do World War One, or indeed any war for that matter? You know, it's it's an interesting question. Uh, there was a piece in the New York Times that ran a couple months ago that I, I actually uh, pulled for my students because uh, it was a question that they asked as well. There are no monuments in North America to the victims of the Spanish flu, or, or maybe there was there was one in a cemetery somewhere. But it's the same thing in Egypt. When I, I got even the the official death toll is is astonishing. It's in none of the histories at all of, of this period of Egyptian history. I mean, I almost fell out of my chair when I read it. I think part of it is that it just doesn't mesh well with the end of the war triumphalist narrative that, you know, you're supposed to feel good about the fact that the war is over, that the good guys won, whomever they are, and that life is going to to get back to normal. And this quick aberrant illness just does not fit well with that. In the Egyptian context, you know, there's a nationalist uprising at the beginning of March. Um, there's a little bit of rumbling in the press that there's a third wave of the influenza that's hit, and then it vanishes. And this this uprising was recast in the 30s as the Egyptian Revolution of 1919. It went, you know, people came out of the fields, you know, in order to demand Egypt's right to self-determination. And, you know, everybody's hand in hand, men and women, Muslims and Christians, you know, rallying for the glory of the nation. Of course, this is the version of the history that was written in the 1930s under sponsorship from the Egyptian monarchy. Um, but within this narrative, there's no room for seeking vengeance for the victims, right? It doesn't fit. It's not sexy. There's nothing sexy about the fight against a microscopic germ. It really seems to bring up the question, what do we remember as a society? <laughs> this is where the poem, uh, Dulce et decorum est pro patria morir, right? You know, it's a wonderful thing to die for your country. Dying for microbes is, is not. And uh, I think there was just a sort of collective forgetting. There were even very few histories of the pandemic until the centenary or uh, post 9-11, I suppose, when people started becoming concerned about the possibility of bioterrorism. Um, it was a convenient go-to, but it was almost a footnote on the history of World War I. If the thing that we think of as public memory is more gendered than uh, we perhaps uh, like to admit, and that one of the reasons we forget the Spanish flu is because it was a memory, it was experienced by women rather than men in a special way, uh, as nurses, uh, as carers. What has made me wonder this out loud is the fact that the only real literary memory we have is from Catherine Ann Porter and Willa Cather. We don't see any thing in Hemingway or uh, in Fitzgerald about the flu. And so it seems to have been something that women were more likely to remember than men, perhaps, but also would have had less access to cultivating public memory. I do think so, yes. The heroes coming back from the war are the ones who get the parades. The ones who stayed at home and suffered do not. I think that the one of the things that's odd about 1918 is that in some ways it was uh, forgotten by a lot of people. I think a lot of people wanted to forget it. I don't really understand that, but um, it, it certainly pops up now and again that that it, it was 
not remembered in a public way like other tragedies. Uh, you're the expert on this. What is our commemoration of it? Where are the monuments to the 50 million people that died? World War One memory in Austin, uh, there seems to be a sort of a, a lesser conspiracy, but a conspiracy nonetheless to have forgotten. Of course, the greatest monument to World War One in town is the Texas Memorial Stadium. And at 13 acres, it's one of the largest war memorials in the country. But it was a place where I think people went to forget. That's why they built an entertainment facility rather than a, a sort of monolithic statuary complex. Uh, I, I think people probably wanted to get on with their lives and forget about the war and forget about Spanish flu, probably because both were considered defeats. I think the germs probably were thought of as the ones that won. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you make that point because uh, even in Washington, D.C., the World War I memorial, and there is one, it's a little classical uh, rotunda with, with columns right off the reflecting pool, but you almost have to be staring straight at it or you'll walk right by it without seeing it. It, it doesn't have the same placement in, in the urban fabric, especially in an area that's so laden with national monuments as the eventual World War II Memorial or the Lincoln Memorial or the Jefferson or the Washington. It's just very quietly off to the side. It's almost like they were torn between we have to commemorate this and we'd like to forget it. Well, I think that it's a very apt metaphor on which we can end that uh, both World War I and Spanish flu are sort of quietly to the side of American history and memory. Uh, but if you do stare long enough, you will see them and um, be able to reflect on what they meant. So I want to thank you, Chris and Michael, for joining us. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. The Briscoe Center preserves the raw materials of the past. Photographs, letters, diaries, business and organizational records, artifacts, and much more. Today's episode was made possible by the oral history of the Texas oil industry records, the official records of the University of Texas, the Texas newspaper collection, the medical history of Texas collection, the Ashbell Smith Papers, and the Bayar Archives. These collections are among thousands of others at the center. People across America have been entrusting this evidence to the university since the 1880s. Today, this evidence is used by people from across America. In addition to inspiring their work, collections inspire our own. Books, documentaries, exhibits, online repositories, and digital humanities projects. By collecting, preserving, and making available these archival materials, the Briscoe Center helps keep the debates and arguments about American history, our values, origins, and identities rooted in evidence, and we keep the American Rhapsody going.